Open your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using the Bible that's on the stand in the back of the church, that is page 978. Ephesians chapter 4, we will read uh, verse 25. As you're turning to that, just to recall that we are in the section of this book where the Apostle Paul is encouraging the Ephesians to no longer live as the Gentiles, to no longer live as they once lived, but rather uh, they are to live differently. And he brings up the motif of putting off and putting on. I was going to continue that theme this morning in the section that we're going to read. And as you go through this passage, I want you to look for that particular uh, pattern of putting off and putting on. He's going to say, put off certain kind of speaking, put off certain kind of living, put off uh, the way that you once lived, and instead replace it with something else. So it's not just, in in Christianity, it's not just a bunch of don't, don't don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but it's replace it with something far better. So as we go through this section, beginning at verse 25, notice that pattern. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, if you're a guest with us, I'm Pastor Mark. I'm one of the pastors here of the church, and I'm going to be taking us a little bit further in Ephesians this morning. We're working our way verse by verse through this uh, letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus. In the last few weeks, we've been considering the theme of maturity. And we define maturity or growing as becoming more like Christ. That's the way Paul envisions a mature person, a mature church, is it is a church or a person who is becoming increasingly like the Lord Jesus. And last week we saw that critical to pursuing that maturity is understanding the new identity that we have in Christ. That is, maturity is not so much about becoming something that you're not, as in becoming the new person that God has made you to be in Christ. We're no longer to be like our pre-Christian selves, because we have already taken off those old clothes and put on a new set of clothes. And so now in Christ, we've been recreated to live after the likeness of God. And in this week's text, we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to explore what a life 
after the likeness of God looks like. So Paul's going to get real specific. Last week was more the theology of what has happened, our new identity, what God has done in Christ to set us up for this new life that we're called to live. And then he's going to describe it in these verses. So we're moving from the theological basis to the practical application, the nitty-gritty of Christian behavior. When God or Paul, God through the Apostle Paul, talks about what a Christian life is, what a life that imitates God, what a life that's patterned after the likeness of Christ is, he's going to tell you what it is, what behavior that looks like. And it's to be behavior that's worthy of God, worthy of the calling which with, with which we've been called, sharply distinct from the non-Christian culture, impossible apart from the Holy Spirit, impossible apart from the redemption that we have in Christ, and reflective of the gospel. So the question that we're going to be considering the next three weeks is, what, how does a new person in Christ live day after day? And believers are called to imitate God by walking in love, by walking in light, and by walking in wisdom. And that's our next three weeks. Walking in love, walking in light, and walk, walking in wisdom. This week, we're going to take up the first of the ways that we're called to imitate God, which is by walking in love. That is, living a life of love toward others. And I want to unpack this text with three questions. Here's the first one. What does a life of love look like? What does a life of love look like? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, contains several practical exhortations. I want you to notice something. Perhaps you picked up on it as Larry read. They are all relational. They all have to do with the way we relate to each other as the church. God intends for the new life that we have in Christ to affect how we interact with each other. I mean, that's basic Christianity, right? The new life that God has given us in Christ is meant to affect how you interact with other people. The love that God has shown you is meant to flow through you to others. And notice that for each of these exhortations, as Larry pointed out before his reading, there's a negative action that's stated first and then a positive action. And that's important because loving others is not just not doing certain things. Well, I don't do those things. I don't lie, so I'm loving. No. Love involves more than merely avoiding negative harm. Love involves doing positive blessing. That's the way God is in his love toward us. God doesn't just not treat us as our sins deserve. He treats us like Jesus deserves. He gives us the kind of life in Christ, the way he treats Jesus. When he looks at his people, when he thinks about us as his people, he thinks about and relates to you the way he loves Jesus. Amazing thought. He doesn't just not do harm to you, he positively pursues you with steadfast love and mercy, according to Psalm 23, all the days of your life. So let's look at these five ways in these verses that Paul defines what a life of love looks like. Here's the first one in verse 25. Loving others means telling the truth. Loving others means we tell the truth. Notice verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, 
Neighbor is just another person in the church, a brother or sister, for we are members of one another. So we speak the truth. We put a, we've put away falsehood. We speak the truth. What's he getting at him here? Remember, the summary idea here is that we're called to imitate God. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. So God is a truth teller. God does not practice falsehood. He's not duplicitous. What he says, he does. Who he is, he is. And we are to imitate God in that way. Remember the church, right? We've seen this in Ephesians already. The church is to be a display of God. We are to show the world what God is like, and we're to show what God's like to each other. And one of the main ways we do that is by telling the truth, by refusing to be pretentious, by taking off the mask, by not pretending. We don't pretend. We don't deceive. If you behave one way in here around Christians and then go out from here and behave a different way, you're not obeying Ephesians 4.25. You're not telling the truth. See, listen, in Christ, we've put away falsehood, which means we've taken off the mask, brothers and sisters. We are what God says we are, both negatively and positively, meaning we're redeemed sinners. So we know that about each other. I know you sin. You know I sin. And in Christ, we know we're forgiven and redeemed. So why do we do sin management all the time in the church? Why do we try to pretend like it's different? Why do we try to come in here and put on this fake aura of like we had a great week and everything's going awesome in my life and praise God? Or when you get in a community group, you do image management. You pretend like things are going better. Listen, brothers and sisters, that is not telling the truth. That is not to be characteristic of the church of God. We try to hide things from each other. We try to conceal things from each other. We try to manage how much each other finds out about each other. See, it's not just about not telling lies. That's a pretty easy command. It's about not presenting a false self, putting away falsehood, telling the truth, owning up to things, being real and genuine and authentic. That is what the church is to be. The church is to be a community in which what you see is really what is. We got a lot of work to do. The church in North America has got a lot of work to do. And I would say the church worldwide probably has a lot of work to do because we are still, as a result of the remaining sin in us, tempted to craft our own fig leaves. Back in the garden, we still do it. We don't believe the gospel that deeply. And so we need to get the gospel more deeply worked into our lives, a greater reminder of who we are. And that's, then we'll live more of a, of a life of truth-telling. So that's the first one. That's the first mark of a loving life is that you tell the truth. You put away falsehood. Secondly, loving others means being righteously angry. Righteously angry. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You notice that? Be angry. It's a command. Be angry. 
When we are righteously angry, we imitate God because God is righteously angry. We might call this righteous indignation. Righteous indignation is holy anger against sin. We need to feel anger as Christians. If we are indifferent to sin and indifferent to its effects on people, what does that say about God to the world? If we are indifferent to sin and its effects on people, how can the Spirit of God live within us? If we love others, how can we not be angry at the sin that destroys their lives? John Stott says, There is a great need in the world for more Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. End quote. Now, as sinners, we are not very good with this, which is why Paul gives us this instruction the way he gives it to us. He says, be angry and do not sin. <laughs> very important qualification. Paul tells us that we must be angry, but in being angry, we must not sin in our anger. He recognizes that while anger is a proper and even essential emotion, it is also a highly volatile and dangerous one. Paul is not giving us permission here to throw a fit or seek revenge or dishonor God with our outbursts. Notice verse 31 where he talks about that kind of anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. He's talking about that sinful anger, not righteous anger, but sinful anger. And he says, notice in verse 26 again, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, even righteous anger shouldn't be allowed to fester. Most certainly not sinful anger, but not even righteous anger should be allowed to fester, which teaches us something about the nature of righteous anger, doesn't it? Righteous anger is episodic, not perpetual. If you live in a seething sense of anger and you call it righteous anger, you're deceived. That's sinful anger. However, if there are episodes in your life where you see sin on the news or in a friend's life or the the horrors of what's happening in our country right now, mass murder, abortion, all these issues that you're seeing and you're not, that are grieving the spirit of God, that grieve the church, that grieve the heart of God. And something wells up within you that is not, that does not say no to that. That is not the way it ought to be. I'm going to stand against that. If something like that does not rise within you, then I think you've misunderstood what Paul calls us to be here. Be angry. But if that sight of that news article or Facebook thing or something that shows up on your Twitter feed or on Fox News or CNN or you read in the paper or you hear from a friend, if that doesn't calm down, then be, beware. So the question then becomes, right, what does this really practically look like? I mean, this is, and it, admittedly, it's a difficult thing to handle. But I think we get some pointers here. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. 
talks about the anger of Jesus. When a religious leader came up to Jesus and questioned him about whether he should be healed, be healing people on the Sabbath, I mean, just think about what just non-Christ-centered religion does to people, right? Makes them the most unmerciful, hard-hearted people. I mean, could you imagine a religious leader in Jesus' day comes up and says, hey, you shouldn't be healing that guy. It's the Lord's day. Can you understand why Jesus gets upset with stuff like that? You notice what he says? You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. He says, he looked at them, the religious leaders, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. That's righteous anger. That's righteous anger. Righteous anger is looking at something, but there's, a, there's, there's within it, there's within that angry emotion, grief at hardness of heart. He's not getting ready to slap them. He's brokenhearted that they would even think that is what God would want. That's what righteous anger looks like. It's episodic. It's not perpetual. He sees the situation. It hits him. He's angry and grief-stricken at the same time. That's probably what righteous anger looks like. It's not so much marked by disgust as it is with grief. You know, I was praying this week, and I've been using the Valley of Vision. We've read it periodically in our, during some of our corporate readings in the service, and I've been using this. It's a, it's a prayer book um, put out several hundred years ago. But this prayer uh, this week that I read, I just want to read part of it to you. And, and, and in the prayer, um, the person who wrote it is confessing their unrighteous anger. Listen, most men, he says, give vent to anger. He's talking to the Lord. He says, most men give vent to anger frequently and are overcome by it, bringing many excuses and extenuations for it, as that it occurs suddenly and that they delight not in it, and that they're sorry afterwards and that godly men commit it. They're making excuses for their outburst. They thus seek peace after outbursts of passion, by entire forgetfulness of it, or by skinning over their wound, they hope for healing without peace in Christ's blood. Lord God, I know that my sudden anger arises when things cross me, and I desire to please only myself, not Christ. There is in all wrongs and crosses a double cross, that which crosses me and that which crosses you. In all good things, there is somewhat that pleases me, and somewhat that pleases you. My sin is that my heart is pleased or troubled as things please or trouble me without having a regard to the things that trouble Christ. Right? There's the difference between righteous and sinful anger. Righteous anger is being concerned with that which troubles the heart of Christ. Sinful anger is typically that which troubles you, that gets on your nerves, that bothers you. Not concerned with Christ's honor, Christ's glory. That's worthy of an, a whole sermon, but we've got to move on. So loving others, we've seen, means telling the truth. Secondly, loving others means being righteously angry. Thirdly, loving others means working hard and giving generously. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Remember, imitate God, right? God is a worker, <laughs> We see that from the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. God's at work. 
We do that every single week, celebrating what God is at work doing. God is a worker. He is active. He does stuff. He gets things done. He's not dependent on anyone, and he is lavishly generous in giving out of his abundance. And so do you know why Paul tells us here to imitate God by working hard? Because that's what God does. God is a God who is self-sufficient, not dependent on anyone, who works in order to give. And we imitate him when we do that. We imitate him when we too strive to work hard so that we can meet our needs and the needs of our family without being dependent on others. Dependence on others that is perpetual and ongoing is not loving, either to the person who's being depended on or the person who's depending. Paul says that we are to work in order to give, to be a blessing to others. So when we as Christians engage in honest, hard work, to help one another find honest work when a brother and sister is in need of work or to help them by sharing what we have in a time of need when they are in need, we are imitating God. Notice, Paul doesn't let us off the hook about just doing an honest day's labor and meeting our needs. Because that's not our God, right? God is concerned about loving others, which means he's concerned about generosity says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, our work is not meant to just terminate on us. It's meant to be a channel through which we can be a blessing to others because that's the way our God is. So we've seen under this first point of what a loving life looks like, that we, are, we love others by telling the truth. We love others by being righteously angry. We love others by working hard and giving generously. Fourthly, we love others by using our mouths to bless. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. When God speaks, what happens? Life happens. Genesis 1, when God speaks, life happens. When he speaks, creation comes into existence. When he speaks, new birth occurs. Lazarus, come forth. And life occurs through the word of Christ. And we imitate him when our words are giving life to others. We imitate him when we use our words to bless and build up rather than corrupt and decay others. To build up indicates our need, listen to this, to be attentive, right? To be attentive to the emotional needs and concerns of our brothers and sisters and then focus our comments on encouraging and affirming them. That's what verse 29 is all about. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the, the occasion, as fits the occasion, which means being sensitive to the emotional needs of another person? What words do they need to hear that would encourage and affirm and build up them? Which means loving others means speaking words that contribute to another's well-being, encouragement, praise, thanksgiving, honest and humble feedback. It's not corrupt speech, speech that rots, makes others sick, like lying, slander, gossip, abusive language, vicious or unkind words. And so the Bible acknowledges all of our guilt here. In James chapter 3, if you remember, who can tame the tongue? 
It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I mean, with our words, James says, we praise God, and with our words, we curse each other. My brothers, it should not be so. So loving others means using our mouths to bless. And this verse challenges both the extroverts and the introverts among us. Me as an introvert, don't get off the hook about this kind of command because my, the easy way I used to take this command was, well, I'm just not going to say anything to anybody. Unfortunately, that's not what Paul's commanding me to do, is he? I just read the first part of that verse. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But speak, Mark. Let the, you need to say some things to build people up according to their needs as fits the occasion. And to the extroverts among us who love to chat in social situations, and then the Bible would call you to say, look, where words are many, transgression is not absent. So be careful in the amount of words that you're using that those words are contributing to the building up of the body. Fifthly and finally, loving others means being kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So what the first word he uses there is bitterness. Bitterness refers to hard-heartedness that harbors resentment about the past. Hard-heartedness that harbors resentment about the past. He also uses the word malice in there at the end of verse 31. That refers to defamatory speech, speech that tears down. It's the opposite of verse 29, where we use our words to build up. So the first couple words, bitterness and wrath, are referring to our attitudes, all right, the attitude with which we operate. The second couple of words, anger and clamor, have to do with disposition. And the last couple of words, slander and malice, have to do with the manner in which we speak. So Paul says, listen, God's church is to be characterized by forgiveness, tenderheartedness, and kindness, not visceral reactions to each other, not blow-ups, not harsh words, not anger and clamor, which is like yelling and shouting and arguing. But God's church is to be characterized by kindness and mercy and compassion. I mean, let's face it. This is a very real verse. I love this verse because I love it when the Bible just tells us reality. And it says, look, in the church, I mean, why is this command in the Bible? Because we're going to get on each other's nerves. That's why it's in the Bible. We're going to irritate each other. And we have a choice in that moment whether or not we're going to imitate God or Satan. We have a choice. Will you be like God, who in the face of your irritating sinful behavior treats you with kindness and ongoing mercy and steadfast love? (laughs) Will you imitate him as a God of unwavering compassion? Will you imitate him as a God of forgiveness? Or will you cave into bitterness, resentment, wrath, clamor, slander, and malice? That's what a life of love looks like. 
A life of love is a life that is marked by truth-telling, righteous anger, hard-working, generosity, blessing with our mouths, and eagerly showing forgiveness, tenderheartedness, and kindness to each other. That's a life of love. Second point, why must we live a life of love? Notice that in each one of these verses that we've already looked at, there is a theological reason given for why we should throw off those sinful practices of our pre-Christian existence, which was marked by, if you were like me, marked by all that stuff. My pre-Christian life was marked by lying and unrighteous anger and stinginess and unkindness and laziness and irritability and unforgiveness. But here in Christ, life is different. God doesn't just give us commands to tell us how to love others, but he also gives us the why. He doesn't just give us bare command. He tells us why we should obey them. So let's go back to each command briefly and see the why embedded in each one. Why should we tell the truth? Verse 25, for we are members of one another. Notice he says, first of all, you've put that away. The beginning of verse 25, having put away falsehood, speak the truth, for we're members of one another. So his argument for why we should put away, we should, we should be honest and transparent and genuine and authentic with one another is because we're the church, <laughs> right? That's his argument. We're members of one another. We're the church. That's how the church behaves. If there's any place in the whole world in which people should feel total freedom to take off the mask, it's the church. That's his argument. That's the way the church is. So the theological reason is you're the body of Christ. Of course you would do that. There's no mask wearing in the Trinity. The community of God is to be a a, a community of love in which there's openness and honesty and transparency. Then why should we avoid sinful anger? Again, he gives us the answer in verse 27. Give no opportunity to the devil. So here he roots the reason we should not be sinfully angry in the fact that the devil preys on such things. Paul tells us to seek reconciliation, peace, harmony, forgiveness quickly because Satan always seeks a gap in between those two things. Satan is at work in unresolved sinful anger. Always. Maybe not him personally, but certainly his emissaries are. The devil will exploit sinful anger for his own purposes. This is why James tells us the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man produces the unrighteousness of God, which is exactly what Satan wants, to make us more and more unrighteous. I mean, what has come, and I speak this to myself, what good has ever come from sinful anger in your life? Other than demonic footholds. I mean, really. That's that's the only place that sinful anger is going. So are you dealing with anger in view of the devil being right behind you, waiting for you not to deal with it. One writer said, the day of anger should be the day of reconciliation. 
The day of anger should be the day of reconciliation, which means you close the gap fast. You keep short accounts. You deal with irritability and upsetness. And if you can't cover it, here's the, here's the deal. All right, love covers a multitude of sins, right? Not everything that irritates you has to be confronted, okay? We should cover most of it. Just let it go. But if it nags you and sticks with you and bothers you and irritates you and causes more anger to well up within you, there's where the devil is seeking an opportunity. And that's where you must call, get together, talk it through, work it out, ask for forgiveness, and reconcile. That's the church. That's what we do. We don't let unchecked resentment go on for years. Is there anyone in this room for the, to whom that's happening right now? Literally for years you've had resentment towards someone in here, or maybe they're not in here, or maybe they're a family or a friend. God does not hold resentment against you in Christ. You are not to hold resentment against others in Christ. You must pursue that and, and seek reconciliation today if possible today. So why should we work hard? Verse 28, so that we might be generous. We've already seen this, so that we might be generous. So are you working hard to meet your needs and are you generous with others? That's the way our God is. And so we are to work hard to imitate our God in this way. Why should we speak words of blessing? Again, notice verse 29, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, verse 30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's a great privilege. Think about it. We have the privilege with our mouths to be able to impart God's grace to another person. And surely all of you who are Christians have have received, you've been on the receiving end of that, an encouraging word, an encouraging letter, a note, a pat on the back, a thank you an appreciation, a blessing. And you've, you've, you've felt uplifted, built up, encouraged. That's God's grace to you. And God brought that grace to you through another person. It's amazing. We get to be conduits and channels of God's grace to each other. It's an amazing privilege and an amazing responsibility. It's an amazing gift that God has put his spirit within us, sealed us as a church and as individuals, so that when we speak, the spirit flows through those words to each other. And each other are built up. You're built up by the Holy Spirit through the encouraging words that gave grace to you. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing gift. Literally, to give grace means to impart a blessing. I mean, say... I mean, I just want to be able to, you should be able to have a a jealousy. I know I want to have this more, to have a jealousy to have people thank the Lord for blessings they receive through my life. Don't you want that? That people would thank God for you? And that's what we want. That's what we should desire for each other and from each other. So we need to ask ourselves questions when we speak, right? Will what I'm about to say please or grieve God's Spirit? Or will the words I'm about to speak minister life and blessing, serving as an expression of God's grace to them? Fifthly and finally, why should we be eager to forgive? Because that's the way our God is with us. 
Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If God can forgive someone like me, then there is no one I should be unwilling to forgive. No one. If God puts up with me, and which he does, and doesn't cast me off, which he doesn't, there is no one I should give up on. Our bitterness and resentment and slander and malice say more about where we stand with God than just about anything. A heart that has been touched by God's forgiveness will not be unforgiving. This is why Jesus said that if you don't forgive others, God will not forgive us. Because it's impossible. A, God that, a heart that God has forgiven forgives. That is its bent and inclination, even with struggle at times. It's not perfect. But nevertheless, there is a resolution deep in the soul of a believer to deal with unforgiveness. So that's why. Those are the whys. Now let's come finally to the how. We've seen the what, what a life of love looks like. Second point, why we do it. And now thirdly, how can we live it out? This is where I want to spend my last five minutes. The answer is given in the first two verses of chapter 5. Would you look at those with me? Therefore... So this is connecting back to, it's, it's kind of an unfortunate thing that uh, the way our Bibles are structured, that it broke there. There's reasons for why, I won't get into those, but I, I do believe that uh, the first two verses of chapter 5 go best with what precedes it. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So notice the how we can live this out. Be imitators of God, first of all, as beloved children. Before I get to that, I just want you to stop with me for a minute and think about the kind of people that God has chosen to love. (laughs) Think about this. God the Father loves recovering liars, former thieves, sinfully angry, foul-mouthed, unforgiving people. That, That was verses 25 to 32. Those are the beloved children of God. Recovering liars, recovering thieves, recovering bitter people, recovering sinfully angry, recovering unforgiving, foul-mouthed, unhelpful speech. And this should teach you something about the way God relates to people. God the Father does not look at such people and say they are disqualified from his salvation. Rather, he looks at them and say they are objects of my salvation. These are the people I've sent my son to redeem. These are the people I've come... Which means that there is no sin or amount of sin too great that can disqualify you from the father's love and the son's redemption if you'll have it. No amount. His grace is such... That even though we were dead in sin, Ephesians 2.1, God made us alive in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or don't know where you stand with God or operating with God by thinking that if you come here, you're going to somehow kind of earn his favor. And if I just keep doing right things and keep trying to change my behavior, that God's going to get, you've got it all backwards. Okay, first of all, before we come to Christ, all of our behavior in God's account is sinful behavior because it's not from faith. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever's not from faith is sin. So even our good works that are good in the eyes of people are not accepted by God because they're not proceeding from a heart that's trusting him. All right, so 
We don't, obviously, we don't get to God by trying to, you know, perform for him. If I just behave well, if I try to not lie so much and just work on being a kinder person and just try to, try to, you know, just pursue a life of love toward people, that God will accept me. No, it's backwards. God accepts people on the basis of what Christ has done for them, gives them a new identity, and then they, from that identity, work out this life of love. That's the difference between Christianity and religious moralism. Christianity puts grace first, forgiveness first, acceptance first, and from that, you live a life of love. God gives you the A+, then you take the class. That's the way it works in Christianity. Not you take the class and maybe you pass. But maybe some of you are here and maybe believe in that. I mean, you really believe that you're, try, you're trying to work your darndest to get a passing grade with God. And it's futile. God has already provided the perfect report card for you. It's called the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why he came. He lived for you in your place and died on the cross for your sin. If you will believe in him and you give your sin to him and receive in by faith, all of his perfect life say, I want your life to count for mine, Jesus. And God, the father says done, done. And the record books in heaven shift. They shift from a zero righteousness account to a hundred percent righteousness account. And that's the way it will be to your dying day. And you get to pursue a life of love. That's what Christianity is. And so that's how the love of God motivates us. So how can we live this out? We live it out that way. We live it out by the love of God. Listen, if you are secure as a beloved child of God, if God loves you, which is what verse 1 says of chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. If your status before God is a beloved child and you're secure in that, believe me, this passage will take on greater and greater effect and significance in your life. How? Like this. Listen, we are free to tell the truth and free to be honest and open with each other. Why? Because that will not change God's love for you. It affects it zero. In fact, it makes him more well-pleased. That you have what grieved the heart of God in the garden was Adam and Eve leaving him. Walking away, trying to hide. But what thrills the heart of God is when his children come to him, even when they've blown it and messed up. You know why? Because it says something about God. It says that God is gracious. He's long suffering. He's slow to anger. And that honors God because it is who God really is. And we're treating him as he really is. He's told us the truth. He's told us who we are. He's told us what he thinks about us. We are beloved children, even though we still struggle with our sin. So we will not fear the frown of man when we have the smile of God. And when we have the smile of God, we're free to take the mask off and not fear what other people might think. Also, we can keep our anger under control if, we're, if we believe we're beloved children. How does that work? 
Because we have a Father in heaven who's going to right all wrongs one day and is working everything together for our good. So we don't not try, try to have to manufacture to turn Washington into the new heavens and new earth now, right? We don't have to get frustrated with what's going on in the political process or in the culture because we know the kingdom's not coming until Christ comes back. That doesn't mean we don't work for change and vote for good leaders and all that stuff, but it does mean that where there's a calm disposition about us, even when Facebook is full of clamor, which good grief it is. When the clamor of Facebook goes up, God's people speak truth with love. That which grieves the heart of our Father which grieves our heart as well, will one day be removed from the face of the universe so we can be episodically righteously angry and then treat people with great grace and patience and kindness the other 99.9% of the time. Also, we can work hard and stop stealing and be generous because we have a Father who is good to us and gave us the gift of work. He's also working for us and stays up all night thinking of ways to be generous to us and bless us. So we can give generously to others because we know God is going to give generously to us. He who waters will himself be watered. He who is kind benefits himself. A cruel man hurts himself, Proverbs says. So if I'm kind, what's that going to do? Benefit me. If I'm cruel, what's that going to do? Hurt me. So if I'm going to water, if I'm going to be generous, I'm going to cast my bread upon the waters and be generous with my money, my time, all that stuff. I I know that God's going to meet me and I'm not going to be without want. See, we, we, we hoard and we hoard our time and our money because we don't think God is generous, right? We don't think that he's as generous as he says he is. He's really not going to meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. So we better make sure we are generous or, or, or stingy a little bit, just a little, right? But no, because our God is generous and we're secure. And he, he's a, look, he's our father. He's our father. What kind of father... Think about it. The Gospels, right? We'll give you a stone for bread. He's not going to do that. He's going to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. His greatest gift, he gives to one question. Can I have him? And he gives the best gift, the Holy Spirit of God, to his children. So the point is, is that we being evil know how to give good gifts to our Father. How much more will he give to us as our great Father in heaven who loves us? We can speak words that build up because we're aware of how gracious the Father is to us. If we're aware of the Father's love, we'll recognize how much grace comes to us from Him through other people. And instead of tearing them down, we can respond with gratefulness and thanksgiving. And we can put away bitterness and clothe ourselves with kindness because the Father has forgiven us in Christ. See, Do you see what the, the orientation of your heart and your mind to being a beloved child of God will do as you walk out this passage? It enables it. It motivates it. Listen, I hope you're not hearing me as Pastor Mark got up there and preached a bunch of do's and don'ts this morning. He got up there and told us all the stuff we stink at and all the stuff we need to get better doing and then go out of here and try harder. No. No, I'm saying you came in as you will leave, a beloved child of God who accepts you, receives you, delights in you, promises to take care of you, warmly welcomes you into the family, adopted you at the cost of his son, all of that. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So imitate him. Imitate the God who is that gracious and loving toward you. 
if he gave up his only son for you. You say, but Pastor Mark, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try. I know. I hear sermons like this. I do Bible studies. I read my Bible. I know it's hard. Like, I'm going to fail. I'm going I'm to try Monday morning this afternoon, and I'm going to say something unkind. I'm going to try, and somebody's going to wrong me, and I'm going to be tempted toward unforgiveness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to work tomorrow morning and not feel like going to work and be lazy or go to school and just, you know, do what the teacher says and check out. You know, I'm not going to really engage. You know, I, yeah, yes, I, you know I'm going to try. So why try? See, you know, you understand, if you're thinking like that, you're operating out of a non-Christian mindset. That's a non-Christian way of thinking. A, a Christian way of thinking is, God loves me in Christ. My status is secure. And listen, Jesus died for all of my sins, past, present, and future. That's what verse 5, or chapter 2, or chapter 5, verse 2 says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you know what happens when you blow it and you don't love and you're not forgiving and you don't model yourself after imitating God the way verses 25 to 32 do? You know what you do? You take your weary, broken, sinful soul and you stand before God and you say, thank you that Jesus' death smells great to you. That's what that text means. A fra- Christ's death is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, which means your good works don't have to be. They are pleasing to the Lord. The Lord commands them. He wants them. But they're not foundational for you. What's foundational for you is Christ's death on the cross for your sin. So when you try to live this life of love and you stumble all along the way, all throughout your life and your sanctification journey is two steps forward and three steps back, or you, you, you live the victorious Christian life one week and then you're questioning whether or not you're even a Christian the next week and all that stuff, when it's just going all over the place and you're striving, you're pursuing, you're trying to kill sin, you're fighting sin, you're believing the gospel, you're trying to rest in the Father's love, when all that fails, this is where you bedrock your hope. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. That's where you rest. And God is pleased with that. He's pleased. He's pleased by your efforts, by your strenuous effort to try to walk in love and please him. He knows that's hard for a sinner to do, a recovering sinner to do. He knows that. And he knows you walk by faith and not by sight. And he knows that you're but dust as Psalm 139 tells us. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Go in that hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together to marinate on both your great love for us and what Christ has done for us and also how you've called us to live a life of love in light of that. Help us to get the order right this morning to not try to earn your love by our love, but to rest in your love and let it transform our lives and pursue a life of love love in light of the fact that we are beloved children of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
leave us with a closing benediction. Um, I want to invite you, I don't know how the Lord might cause you to respond to uh, that uh, text this morning. Um, maybe you need to, you sense right now that you need to get right with God and that um, you've been operating out of a, 
out of a different paradigm than a Christian one. And you've thought, if I just do enough for God, you know, he'll love and accept me. And I want to invite you to speak to one of the pastors about that. And we'd love to pray with you and talk to you about that. There'll be a couple of us up there, a couple in the back. You can grab one of us. We'll chat with you. Um, if, if you're a Christian here this morning and uh, you're like so many of us who come in here struggling with sin, hope that you're encouraged this morning, uh, that your foundation is secure and that your status is permanent and the, the Father who loves you will stop being God before he stops loving you. And he's pledged himself to you in the death of Christ and pray that out of his love for you, you will live a life of love for others. We have the Lord's Supper tonight. It's a great opportunity to gather together. The table will be set. Come feast with Jesus, feast on Jesus with us. Uh, be reminded of his love for you. That starts at 5 p.m. Our brother John Lynn, who greeted us this morning, will be uh, preaching for us in the evening. Yep. Also, PT mentioned to me, thanks for that reminder, uh, six new members are going to be received into membership, so we'd love to have as many of our members here as possible because you've got to vote them in. The pastors don't receive members into the church. The church receives members into the church. So if the church doesn't show up, we can't have new members. So <laughs> I encourage you to be here and, and receive these new members into our church. If you haven't seen their testimonies, they're right as, as soon as you walk out those doors, right on the left. And uh, let me leave you one last plug before I give the benediction. We get a book of the month every month. Uh, this month I chose one that's specifically about the message that we're going to be preaching the next three weeks on sanctification, which is growing in Christ's likeness, growing in the likeness of God that we talked about. Eric Mason, a good brother, has released a new book called Unleashed. Um, you're a Christian. Now what? Being conformed to the image of Christ. So it's all about some of the stuff we talked about. So if you're looking for a book to read that will encourage your growth in Christ, encourage you to pick it up. Eric's a clear writer. He's simple. He's not verbose, and he won't weigh you down. So I encourage you to pick that up. Psalm 103 will be our closing benediction this morning, just the part that I quoted um, earlier. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Go in God's peace. One, two.